If you have your Bible, I would like to invite you and encourage you to open it to Colossians chapter 1. So either open the Word if you brought a copy with you, turn it on your phone, but you are going to need Colossians 1 in front of you this morning because we are going to take a, a long walk through this letter as we continue our study through the Colossians, our, our series through Colossians, which Pastor Kyle started for us last week, and now we are going to pick up where he left off in verse 15. And this is what the word of the Lord says. The Apostle Paul, under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin by telling you an acronym that all the, all the young people are using nowadays. It's called the GOAT. And what it stands for is it stands for the greatest of all time. Typically, you, you hear this acronym thrown out in, in, comp, in uh, basically sports language, right? So everybody's asking, who is the GOAT when it comes to, to football or to golf or to swimming or whatever the case may be? But let me let you in on a little cultural intense debate taking place today about the GOAT. And that comes in the sport of basketball. Like, it's, it's, it's out there. Who is the greatest of all time in the game of basketball and There's typically two schools of thought. You have Jordan, Michael Jordan, or you have LeBron James. Now, here's the deal. No matter what age group you are in this morning, you know Michael Jordan or LeBron James, right? I almost said amen, but that wasn't the appropriate time. And so this debate is all over the place. For example, when I uh, was interviewing for my job at Southeastern before coming on staff here, uh, one of our core values at Southeastern is being lighthearted. And I was asked, who is the greatest of all time, Jordan or James? And apparently the boss that I then had didn't like my answer because he thought the other way. But luckily it didn't prevent me from getting the job. At our last church, in fact, this was a debate amongst our staff. One of our teaching pastors came out one day and he said, you know what's funny? He said, it's funny that our worship pastor believes James is the best, yet every Sunday he leads us in a pair of Jordans. Talk about the epitome of hypocrisy. So how do we determine who the goat is? Like when we, when we ask that question, who is the greatest of all time, how do we make that determination? Well, we look at the facts, don't we? Basically, we look at statistics. We, we look to see what these people have done in their particular sport or in their particular area that we're asking that question. And we say, based off of this, this is what makes them the greatest of all time. This is what makes them the goat. Now, here's what I want you to know. I, I don't want to sway you. 
at Center Church, whether to go one way towards Jordan or to go towards James. Okay, I am not. So everybody understand, I'm not trying to sway you. So, so these are the typically what we look at. We look at the facts to determine who the greatest of all time is. So I, I got this slide for you. Go ahead. Sure. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. That, uh, we were supposed to, that slide. There it is. I'm not trying to sway you. So this is what we look at, right? We look at the statistics. We look at how often they go to the playoffs and how many times they've been in the appearances and the NBA finals and how many medals or trophies that they've won. And, and we determine based off of those facts who the greatest of all time is, right? Well, here's what I want to show you. You can take that down. I'm not trying to sway anybody from there. Okay, here we go. Here's what I want. Paul is doing something very similar here for us in this text. Paul is talking to the church in Colossae, and he's saying from the outset, from verses 15 all the way to 20, he's saying, listen, church, understand, Jesus truly is the greatest of all time. In fact, he is so great, he's even outside of time. That Jesus, if you want to put it into what I want to show you this morning, Jesus really is the goat. And the church is built upon this fact. So what I want you to see this morning, I want you to take away one thing, and that is this. Jesus Christ is superior. He is supreme. Go ahead. Hit that next slide. We believe in the supremacy of Christ, the superiority of Christ, who changes lives and gives hope. That's what I want to show you this morning. Now, here's how that's going to work. I'm going to give you two facts. I'm going to give you we believe statements about Jesus. These are going to be more like the way that I created this sermon is I said, let's, let's think of it in terms of confessionals. So this is what we believe about Jesus. And because these are the facts about Jesus, this is how Jesus changes our lives and gives us hope. Okay, now a quick pre, uh, kind of a quick warning. I, if you're here this morning, you're like, oh, Jeremy's going to take us into the deep side of theology. You're going to be sadly disappointed. I don't have that kind of time. When we talk Christology... Thousands and thousands upon thousands of pages have been written on Christ. And so I'm not going to be able to dive that deep for you this morning because this is the preaching event. But here's what I will say as a kind of a quick caveat to that. Like if you want to go, he's like, Jeremy, I really want to dive deeper into Christology. And by the way, Christology means the study of the person and work of Jesus. Then simply set up a time. Let's go have coffee. Let's go to my office. We can go have lunch and we can we can sit down and we can. Split what I like to say in our office, we can split those theological frog hairs as much as you want. But today in the preaching event, I just got to show you the facts. And Paul, that's all he's doing to the church. He's just giving them the facts. All right. So is that a good warning for everybody? All right. So let's look at the text. So I got the first we believe. And this comes in verse 15. Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul does something really interesting throughout verses 15 and 20. He begins with a fact. This is who Jesus is. This is the fact. This is what makes him the greatest of all time. And then in verse 16, notice the word for. This is a conjunction that connects what Paul has said in verse 15 to verses 16 and 17. And so, so what Paul's going to do is going to say, listen, this is the fact about Jesus. Therefore, verses 16 and 17, for because of this truth, here's the implications of that truth. Here's how the the truth spreads to the rest of creation. He does that again in verse 18. Verse 18 is a truth. And then what do you see in verse 19? What what word there? Okay, yeah, good. Got a couple of you with me. Four. Because of this truth, Paul says, here is the implications, verse 19 and 20. So here's truth number one. Fact number one about Jesus. Coming from verse 15. 
We believe, we believe Jesus is fully God and fully man. This is what we call the incarnation. That in Christ, both deity and humanity dwell fully. Now again, we can talk hypostatic union. Just link up with me and we'll talk more about that. But Paul makes it very clear. He doesn't even have to, he doesn't even parse that out for us. And in verse 15, he just says, look, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, now we got to ask the question, who is the he that Paul has in mind here? Well, obviously it's the, the one who images the invisible God. But also if we look back at verse 13 and 14, we, we get a bigger picture that this he here is talking about Jesus. Verse 13, he says, he has delivered us, that is God, from the dominion of darkness And look what he's done. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Beloved son, there's Jesus, in whom, what? We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, verse 15, he, that he there is going back to the beloved son of verse 13. So Paul clearly has in mind the idea of Jesus. And he says, without hesitation, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What does Paul mean by image of the invisible God there? That word in the original language, it actually has kind of two connotations, uh, two ways that it can be interpreted. The first way is to think of it like a penny. All right, do y'all remember when we used to use money? Like, anybody? You know, you know what a penny is? All right. I thought about bringing one up, but I think we all can figure out what a penny is. But on a penny is an icon, is an image of who? Abraham Lincoln. All right, good. Some of you have seen a penny before. Abraham Lincoln. And that is an image of Abraham Lincoln. But does that represent the presence of Abraham Lincoln? The answer is no. That's one way that you can interpret this verse. But I don't think that is what Paul has in mind. Paul doesn't have in mind that Jesus just looks like or is the image or icon of God. The second way that this word is used in the, in the New Testament is the idea of the very presence of. In other words, what Paul is saying to the church in Colossae, he's saying Jesus is the very presence of of the invisible God. That Jesus, when we look to the scriptures and see Christ, we see God in the flesh. He, he's taking it the same way that we see in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, the author of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, but that's a debate for another day. Come have coffee with me. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John, in, in John chapter 1, in the prologue of John's gospel, he says that it is the, he is the word who became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. So Paul clearly has in mind that when you look at Jesus, you see the very presence of God before you. Fully God and fully man. But then notice what he says next. He says he is the firstborn of all creation. Now this can throw people for a loop. In fact, let me just kind of put it to you this way. One of my tasks as one of your pastors is to teach you good theology. And the reason that I need to teach you good theology is to prevent you from going into two different directions. Number one, the first direction that I want to prevent you from going into is embracing heresy. In other words, embracing bad theology. So when I teach you from the scriptures, I don't want you to embrace bad heresy. But on the second realm, on the second alternate, when I teach you good theology is so that I prevent you from creating heresy. You'd be surprised at how many people subtly become heretics. And so my job is to present the scriptures to you so that you know the truth and therefore you can spot the false. 
And remember, that's what the church of Colossians is dealing, I mean, Colossae, they're dealing with this. In chapter 2, when we'll look at again in a couple of weeks, uh, false teachers have infiltrated this church and they have begun to teach heresy. And Paul's like, I gotta correct that because I love you too much for people to lead you astray. And he has no problem presenting you the truth, presenting us the truth. In fact, he says in verse, chapter 2, verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spheres of the world, and not according to Christ. And I love what Paul does. Paul just goes ahead and starts the whole letter with who Jesus is. And he says, from that truth, from that knowledge of truth, he says, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to poke holes in all these heresies. One of my tasks is to give you good theology so that you can prevent heresy. Think of it like this. Do, do, do we know? I know we're talking a lot about currency today. But um, do y'all remember what banks were? Y'all remember banks? Most of us, we don't go into banks. Like we just, honestly, the bank that I use doesn't even I think, have a building. It's all online. But you remember when you used to go into banks and there was these wonderful people? They were called bank tellers. And bank tellers used to take your money or give your money away, right? Not, not away, they gave it back. Not away, they gave it back. But one of the things that they used to train bank tellers on is they used to train bank tellers on knowing the genuine dollar so that they could spot the counterfeits. So they taught bank tellers how to, how to feel a dollar, how to, how to look at a dollar, how to maybe even, I don't know, I wasn't ever a bank teller, maybe smell a dollar. And so they said, this is what the genuine dollar looks like. So when a false dollar comes your way, what are you going to be able to do? Immediately spot it. Well, that's what I want to do for you this morning. I want you to be able to, to spot good theology so that you can spot the counterfeits that come your way. Let me show you how easy heresy can come into a church. In the 4th century, there was a bishop by the name of Arius. And Arius was living in a, in a culture that was accusing Christianity. He was a, he was a Christian, but, but there was some heresy of, of aligned with him. And, 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 and he was trying to prevent the culture who was blaming Christianity on being what we call polytheistic. In other words, they were accusing Christianity of polytheism. Poly meaning many, theism meaning gods. And they said, no, you're not, you don't believe in one God, Christians, because you believe in a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. And Arius is like, oh, how do I talk about this one God, three persons concept? So he began to search the scriptures, and he comes to passages like this, and he reads that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And he goes, hmm, that's interesting. He begins to teach a false view of the incarnation, which he called, which we ended up getting his name called Arianism. And he began to preach and teach that Jesus was a created being. In fact, this became such a hotly debated topic that the church brought together a council called the Council of Nicaea. And the Council of Nicaea determined that Arius' view was heresy, and they wrote the Nicene Creed out of it to say, this is what we truly believe about Jesus. But listen, brothers and sisters, heresy is like a snake. It always likes to pop its head up. But in fact, there are, there are groups of people today who believe in Arius' teaching. False groups that believe in Arius' teaching. And so we got to think, what is Paul saying? That doesn't match what we know about Jesus who is the invisible God. So how does he say in firstborn of all creation? Well, it's very clear. Paul is logically walking us to the end of verse 18. Look at it with me real quick. The verse of 18, he says that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. That, that word preeminent, it means supreme, superior. Uh, it means number one. It means the goat. 
And Paul is saying, he's pushing us back to verse 15. He says, listen, he is the firstborn of all creation, not in that he was created, but in his position. It's not creational, it's positional. He's saying, out of, if we look at everything out of creation, Paul says, Jesus is number one. He's the, he's the firstborn. He's, he's the top in position. He is over everything. Why? Because he's fully God and fully man. That's why. He's God in the flesh. Let me, let me help you. In Psalm 89, Psalm, uh, David, who writes Psalm 89, he, he uses uh, what we call the Messianic Psalm. And listen to how David uses this word firstborn language to help us understand that this is positional, not creational. Psalm 89, 27, he says, and I will make him the firstborn. What does that mean? He says, the highest of the kings of the earth. You see the position? Not creation, it's position. Jesus is the highest of all the kings on the earth. Why? Well, because he's God in the flesh. That's a very simple answer, right? Okay, so what does this mean now? What does this mean for you and me? Paul gives us the implication for this reason. 16. It says, for by him, what? All things were created. In heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. You know what that means? This is what Paul is saying. On the truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man, this is what that means. He owns everything. Man, how refreshing that is to hear as church people today, right? And no matter what's going on in our world, that's no matter what's going on in the little things in our life, Jesus is still King and Lord over all. Somebody should have said amen right there. Thank you. Jesus owns it all. And when these, these false teachers come in and they start to say things like, oh, these elemental spirits are equal to or maybe superior to Christ, Paul says, absolutely not. Everything that you see, everything you don't see, Jesus owns it. It's his. I, I, there's a, there was a missiologist uh, by the name of Abraham Kuyper. He was a Dutch reform guy, and I like some of his stuff. But he was at an inaugural address one time, or address for a school, and he, he made this one of the most amazing statement that I think captures exactly what Paul is trying to relate to us today. And as this statement, he says this. Abraham Kuyper said at that statement, yep, you're right. There it is. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. You could have said amen there too. Y'all with me, I hope. That, thank you. That is exactly what Paul is saying. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God, because he is priority over all and superior over all creation, all of creation belongs to him. Oh, what that brings me some security and safety, doesn't it? Isn't it great? Yes. You're going you're to get me going real fast if you keep doing that. It, it, it pumps me up to know that as a Christian, no matter what I'm going through in my life or what I am struggling or dealing with, I have a Savior who says, it's all mine and I've got you. Oh, security that we have in Christ. And we know that we have that security because of who He is. The fact is, He is fully God 
and fully man. But look what he does next. He, he moves us. Paul, in his wonderful logical argument, he moves us from the superiority of creation. And he says, but not only is he superior over creation, he's also superior over his new creation. He's superior over redemption that he gives to people who put their faith in him. He says this in verse 18. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. So Paul moves from this big picture of creation into the church. And he's going to finish out in verses 18 all the way down to 20. And really into 21 and 23, he's going, to, he's going to center in on his new creation, which we call the church. Because the church is the visible representation of the gospel to the world. And Jesus, Paul is saying, he's Lord over it all. He is Lord over redemption. That's what we believe. So number two fact, we believe that Jesus is Lord over redemption. Look what Paul says. He says he is the head of the body. I love that word head there. That, that head has that actually two meanings that can be associated with it when he talks about the body. Number one, the head is connected to the body. So therefore, Paul is saying that Jesus is the Lord over redemption in a way that he is connected to his body. And specifically, when we ask the question, well, who is his body? What does Paul answer? The church. So think about that for a moment. Jesus is united to his people. But number two, what does also the head mean? Well, going back to this idea of preeminence, what does that mean? Jesus is also superior over the body. The head directs the body. As I move my hands and flail them around, and you'll get used to it, I promise. It's my head that's causing this movement in my brain. And so what, what Paul is ultimately saying, he's saying, listen, Jesus is superior over his church. In other words, Jesus owns his church. And Jesus will do whatever he wants with his church. Now, this is a problem in our American church context. Can I tell you how many churches think that they own the church? They No, we're going to do what we want to do. And God in his grace always says, fine, go see how that works out for you. And I will tell you, when you begin to be a church that does whatever you want, you will be a church. Trust me, I've seen it every time. You will die. Because it's not your church. It's Jesus' church. And yes, Jesus gives us leaders and people to be in the church and to serve the church. That's great. But it's not yours. And Paul's going to show you why it's not yours. And I'm just going to give you a little insight and hint. You know why it's not yours? You didn't buy it. He did. He bought it by his blood. He bought it by going to the cross and then gloriously and victoriously resurrecting from the dead. And so we need to always be a church, I pray, that is under the, under the seeking and prayerful uh, leadership of the Holy Spirit, that we would be a church that is governed and directed by the head, Jesus Christ. Not the other way around. Because I guarantee you, when you turn that around, we will start dying. Because we will get our priorities mixed up with what we want instead of looking at what Jesus wants from us. What's amazing is he moves on in this and he says, not only that, he's the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Again, there's that firstborn language again. So is Paul talking chronologically here? Because if we look through scripture, there was people that were raised from the dead, right? Lazarus, some others, see some, even some raising from the dead, even in the Old Testament. So how is Jesus the firstborn of all creation? So again, Paul is not talking chronologically. He's talking superiorly, positionally. Jesus' resurrection means something. 
And it means something specifically to the Christian because it is the resurrection that we hang our hope on. Without a resurrection, Paul says, we are, we're the people most to be pitied. Because that means we don't have the truth. The resurrection of Jesus proves that he has defeated sin, that he has removed the sting of death, and that he has defeated the enemy. And we know that because he's alive. And that resurrection, with it, with that resurrection mentality, the, the truth of the resurrection, is that means he lords over redemption and he brings people to himself through the truth, beauty, and goodness of the gospel. And he says at the end of this, he says that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. But look what he does in verses 19 through 20. He begins to prove to us how Jesus is the Lord over redemption. 19, he says, for, there's that word again, connecting us to verse 18. Here's the implications of that, Paul says. He says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And look what he does. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Notice a couple of things here. We see the gospel fully on display. Christ alone can reconcile things to himself. This does not teach universalism where everybody goes to heaven. This teaches redemption sounded upon Christ. Only Christ has the ability to reconcile all things to himself. And, and the resurrection is the, the transforming and redeeming power of God in the world. That's what Paul has in mind here. There's a, there's a great book by Oliver O'Donovan who he talks about the resurrection in the moral order. And he says, the resurrection turns the tables of history. And it redeems, and that Jesus alone redeems and transforms it. And I think that he is absolutely right. And I think that is exactly what Paul is saying. But let's ask the question, how? How does Jesus redeem and transform the world? Right here. Look at the very end of verse 20. By making peace by the blood of his cross. Listen, brothers and sisters, listen. The cross was the cost of our sin. The cross was the cost of our sin. An instrument that is harsh became an instrument that brought healing. An instrument that brought redemption. When we were in rebellion, Christ died for us to bring us into relationship with Him. When we were in sin, Christ brought us into relationship to be saved from sin. And He did this all through the blood of his cross. Listen, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. This is good news. If you're here this morning, I want you to know that Jesus loves you so much that this is what he did for you. And this is why the incarnation is so important. Because of his deity, he had no sin. But because of his humanity, he was able to identify with us as human beings who had sin. And so therefore, what God does is God takes his wrath for sin and he pours it out on the Son. Why? So that through Him, you and I can be reconciled, reconnected to God, and begin to live out our lives for the glory of God. Listen, no matter where you are today, no matter if you've come in and you're feeling the suffocating weight of your sin and the brokenness that your sin has caused you, I want you to know that there is a God in heaven who loves you so much that He will forgive you of anything and everything you have ever done, and at that moment, He will change your life and give you hope. I tell people all the time, when people ask me, like, tell, tell me a little bit about Center Church, I always tell them, I said, we're a young church, like seven years old, 
But then I turn around and I say this, but we're a young church with the same old message. The same message that Paul preached to Colossians 1, the gospel is the only way for people to be saved. We still have that same message, even though we're a young church. Because that's all we have. And that's all we point people to. Brothers and sisters, listen. If you're here today and you don't know if you have that relationship with Jesus, I want you to know that he is going to call you out, that he is ready to put your, you to put your faith in him, to believe that he has brought you peace by the blood of his cross, that he will reconcile you to God himself, and he's done all this through proof in his resurrection because he is the firstborn from the dead. Therefore, we believe, say amen if you agree to this now, we believe that Jesus is Lord over redemption. So what does that do for us? Like, oh, Jeremy, we're great with theology, but what do we do with it? That's my favorite question to ask. That's why I got into ethics. Take theology, and we do something with it. And I think Paul can't help himself here in verse 21. He can't help himself. He's like, I've talked to you about the fullness of God. I've talked to you about Jesus, the invisible God. I've talked to you about the Lord over redemption. He says, here's what this means for you and me. Verse 21. And you, he says who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. I love this about Paul. By the way, in, in the ESV, I think the ESV translated right, in the original language, verses 21, 22, and 23 are all one sentence. There's no break up there. But verse 21, 22, and 23 have one main verb, and that verb is reconciled. So Paul is going to give us a picture of what we were like before, then how the gospel changes you, and now what your life looks like today. Make sense? So let's look at this. Verse 21, he says, And you who were once alienated, those words in the Greek language, who once were, I think that's a good translation. It, it means that this is how you used to be on a continuous basis. This is what your life was, period. You were, you were alienated from God. And, and what, is our, what is the extent of our alienation as sinners? He says, you were hostile in mind and you did evil deeds. That's who you are. You lived your life how you wanted to live your life. And out of that futility of your mind and the hostility and the evil of your soul, you did whatever you want to put yourself in the place of God. And Paul says, that's who you were. What's the key word? Were. That's the good news of the gospel. Paul can take people from wherever they are. I'm not Paul. Jesus can take people from wherever they are change their lives and many of you sitting here are living testimonies of that good news one of the best ways to share the gospel is just to share your story so let me tell you what i was like in verse 21 and then let me show you what god did for me in verse 22 and 23 can i give you a warning though two things two warnings that we should take away number one never forget where jesus brought you from People that are the meanest in the church are the people who forgot what Jesus did for them. They're the people who forgot that they too once been were in 21. And they treat everybody like they should be in verses 22 and 23. And that's my second truth for us, a second warning for you, church. Listen, people are going to come in here broken, hurting, and needing hope. People are going to come into our lives that are in verse 21 and May we never become a church that pushes them away because they're not 22 and 23. I always like to tell people, how do you expect lost people to live? 
Well, I expect them to live like lost people, don't you? You say, oh, that's not in Brenham. I hope she's not listening. But it is way in Brenham. A couple weeks ago, somebody was walking by our house, and that person had a dog. So I used our children as gospel bait. Hey, go, go ask to pet the dog. Can I pet your dog? Yeah. Hey, I'm Jeremy. This is my wife, Katie. How are you? I'm good. I'm a pastor at Center Church. We would love to have you attend if you don't have a church home. Well, this is the response. What kind of church are you? Um, a gospel church? A believing church? Um, what do you mean by that question? This person looked at me and they said, we went to a church one time, but we're not living the way that we know that people think we should be living. And I'm living with my, my boyfriend and I don't want to be talked about like I was at, my last, at the last church I went to. Are y'all going to judge me? Are you going to criticize me for my lifestyle? See, that's a church that forgets that there are people still in 21. And I said, no. No, because I want to get you to Jesus. And then I'll let him work it all out. And then we'll disciple you. And then we'll train you. And then we'll tell you what marriage looks like. And we'll tell you why it's important. And how it, how it symbolizes the truth, beating, goodness of the gospel. No, I first need to get you out of 21. And I can't do that. Jesus has to do that. But first, we've got to get out of 21. And Jesus, by his, by his death and flesh, and present you, he will reconcile you to God. And at that point, we'll begin to train you. And at that point, we'll begin to change you. And at that point, we don't do it. We're just going to disciple you and let the Holy Spirit do it for you. You see, we, we get it wrong in the church. We, we get people that are like, oh, you got to get right before you get to Jesus. Show me that in the Gospels. When the prostitutes come to Jesus, when the sinners and the tax collectors come to Jesus, he, he sees their faith, and then what does he respond with? Well, go get, go get right, stop your sexual immorality, and then you can come to me. Is that what you see? What does he say? He says, oh, I've never seen such great faith. Now go and sin no more. I've moved you, Jesus says, from 21 into churches 22 and 23. So that leads us to our next point. How does Jesus change our lives? Look what he says. Paul says, because of these truths, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you. I love that. Jesus presents you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's what Jesus does. Now, there's two ways we need to think about this concept. Uh, I'm indebted to Anthony Hoikema, who wrote a book called Created in God's Image. And he talks about two forms of sanctification, definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. So, what I mean by that is, when God looks at you, when you put your faith in Jesus, he doesn't see sin. He sees you as holy and blameless and above reproach. Why? Because Jesus has robed you. He has reconciled you. This is now who you are. I, 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 was, I was young, and, I, and this is more of a slap in the face to me than it is to anyone else. And I was young, and I was halfway through my MDiv, and I was at my first church, and we were at a men's gathering. And the men's gathering guy got up there, and he's doing, he's, he's not, you know, he's just doing the best he can. But again, this is more on me. I was very proud and arrogant. The Lord has humbled me since then. And he says, how many of you are without sin? And man, my hand shot up. And he was like, excuse me, Pastor Jeremy? And I'm like, I'm without sin. He's like, how, how are you with, you, you're telling me you have no sin. You don't struggle with sin? I said, ah, you changed the word. 
You asked me if I had any sin. You see, brother, if I still had sin, then that means the gospel doesn't have power over sin. Now, the question you asked was, do I still struggle with sin? Of course I do. Because now what God is doing in my life, the Holy Spirit is teaching me how to live out my perfection in Christ. And what he's got to do is he's got to get rid of all those habits, all that brokenness, all that problem of verse 21. And this is what we call progressive sanctification. Think of it like this. I, got, I, I thought of this great analogy to help you think through that. So how many, I'm not going to ask. We have children, right? And children, they, they grow at exponential rates, right? Exponential rates, children grow. So like, for example, their feet, they grow fast. So when their shoes, when their toes are popping out of their shoes, they're like, hey, mom and dad, I think I need some new shoes. Do you go and buy the exact same shoe for that exact same fit right then? Do you go buy a shoe that fits them right there in that moment? Moment. If you're a good parent, you don't. Why? Why? Because in two days, they'll outgrow what it fits. So what do you always buy? You buy a half to a size bigger that they can what? Grow into. That's how progressive sanctification works. Jesus has already made you perfectly sanctified before him and God. That's why the main verb is he's reconciled you to God. Now what he's going to do in your life. Paul says, here's the way it looks. He's going to present you holy and blameless. Here's what he's going to do. Now he's going to help you grow into that perfection you have in him. That's what we call sanctification. That's the growing process. And listen, Christian, brothers and sisters, you should be growing in Christ every day. Are you going to have days where you, where you mess up more than others? Sure. Are you going to have days where you're going to struggle more? Sure. But nonetheless, you should still be growing in that relationship and in that new relationship you have in Jesus. So often, I think the church gets it wrong. where We think, oh, I'm saved and I don't have to do anything. No, God saves you so that you can recover and pursue his design for you. And then you can be a gospel witness to others around you. That was an amen moment. Lastly, not only does he change your life, he gives you a hope. Paul, verse 23, says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now, I don't like the way this is translated. I think it should be translated assuming that you have faith. Paul's not questioning their faith. The way that it should be written is assuming that your faith is true, assuming that you have a faith and you're going to continue it. He says, this is where you need to do. Be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. In other words, brothers and sisters, listen, the gospel is our foundation for life. And it gives us hope in this life, does it not? It gives us hope. This word steadfast here is the same, or this word stable is a, is a word in, in the original language that they use to talk about a building. It's like the concrete or the foundation that we build our houses upon. And, and Paul says, assuming your faith is true, therefore your hope, your stability doesn't shift in the gospel. This is what you build your life on, is what he's saying. You build your life on the hope of the gospel. I love the way that Jesus paints this picture for us in one of his parables in Matthew chapter 7. You ever heard the parable about the guy who built his house on the rock and the guy who built his house on the sand? The floods, the rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. Don't make me get bread up here to sing it to you. And look what Jesus says. 
everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. This is what Paul is saying. You build your life on this gospel. You build your life that Jesus is fully God and fully man. You build your life that Jesus is the Lord over redemption. You build your life on how the gospel changes you and that will be your foundation in life. So when the storms of life come, when the circumstances are suffocating, when bad theology arises, you have built your house upon the hope of the gospel and therefore you will not fall. Do you remember that old hymn that we used to sing? There's a reason it comes out of this text, I think, that on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground, all false philosophies, all empty deceit, all human tradition, all of that is what? Sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's what Paul says. We don't build our lives on the things that are going to make us sink Build our lives on the hope and truth and beauty and goodness of Jesus and his gospel. And therefore, when the winds of life come, we remain stable. We remain steadfast and we don't shift ever. So how do you respond to a powerful message that God has given us in Colossians 1? There's a couple of ways. Maybe you're here today and you're like, oh, I'm still in verse 21. Jeremy, that is still who I am. And I want to be reconciled to God through this Jesus you have talked about who is Lord over redemption and fully God and fully man. And he's paid everything for my sin by the peace of his cross. And I I want to be reconciled. Come, come talk to me. And I will help walk you through your next steps. But some of you in this room who are, call yourself believers and Christians, you need to ask yourself two questions. Number one, is Jesus changing my life? Answer that question by this. Go home today. Ask your wife. Or your husband, do you see God changing my life? Ask your child, do you see God changing? Ask somebody close to you, do you see Jesus changing my life? And just be ready, whatever answer comes your way. If you need counseling, you talk to Kyle. <laughs> but ask, do you see that change? Do you see that gospel change? And number two, ask yourself this question. Have I built my life on the hope of the gospel? If I lost every single penny I had today, do I still have hope? If I lose my job this tomorrow, do I still have hope? If the world crashes down around me and the supply chain issues get worse and eggs keep getting more and more expensive, do I still have my hope and rest and foundation in the gospel? And then what we're going to do, I'm going to give you a moment just to reflect on those questions. Then we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take communion together as the church. Not that we don't do it as a church often when we come up here, but we're going to, we're going to do it together. When it says, He is the head, 
of the body of the church, I think this is a great opportunity for us to be reflecting upon the gospel together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So when you get done praying, you just come up here, you grab one of the great juice containers, you grab a piece of bread, and you go sit down at your seat, and I'm going to lead you in communion this morning. Now here's what communion is. Communion is for those who are believers. Believers in good standing with your church. If you believe in the hope of the gospel, then you are welcome to come and partake with us. But if you're not, listen, we're not trying to ostracize you or make you feel uncomfortable, but we believe this is something serious because it symbolizes what Jesus has done for us and what we believe in. And so we ask that you would just refrain. Not as a mean to make you feel bad or make you feel weird, but then what I pray happens is that through this message and through the, what you're about to see take place as we, we show you our hope in the gospel, that you would put your faith in Jesus and then as we continue to walk with you and baptize you and move you down the discipleship path, that next time you would come and you would be a part of our communion with us. So I'm going to pray. And I'm going to give you a few minutes. And then you pray. Do whatever you need to do in your seat. Come and get your elements. Go sit down and then I'll come back and lead you in communion. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for its clarity, its accuracy, its integrity, its power. So Father, I don't know how you're working in the lives of people right there in their seats. But Father, I pray that they would respond to you in the ways that you want them to, in the ways that are appropriate. And Father, that you would have your way in their lives. That you would draw them closer to yourself today and then push them out tomorrow, tonight and tomorrow into the world to be lights shining in the darkness. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to play softly. You take a moment and you move as the Lord leads.